millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. This is where they die. And the shield boys. Remember this day, man. It will be yours for all time. Spartans, lay down your weapons. to Neon. We are live at the Everyman Cinema in King's Cross. We have just seen the movie 300. I am very excited. I'm Jem Daduchu, the presenter of Neon, and I'm here today with Tom Holland, uh, a, a lauded uh, writer, um, award-winning writer, and uh, I, I, can I call it a guilty pleasure? Or is it just simply a pleasure, the movie 300, for, for yourself? It's an unsettling pleasure because um, okay. it, it, it's a very unsettling film because, uh, as its critics have said, it is in many ways pretty fascist. Um, the film opens with um, what is basically uh, a sequence in praise of eugenics. So it begins with the apothecary, which was a ravine down which um, all those babies judged by the Spartan elders to be too weedy, to be maybe too enfeebled, to be, grow up to become great Spartan warriors would be thrown down. Um, this is presented at the beginning of 300 as absolutely a positive. And throughout the film, you have um, a portrayal of strength, of power, of military prowess uh, as being absolute positives. One detail, one aspect of fascism that is skated over is the fact that um, the Spartans were the Spartan society was 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 a slave society. It was based on the systematic exploitation of um, of, of, of an entire people who'd been enslaved. So we don't get them, but in other, in almost every other way, it's the kind of film that you could imagine Hitler really really enjoying. And 
the reason for that is that the Spartans were a kind of model for the Nazis. Um, Hitler claimed that um, the Spartans' diet consisted of this, this revolting black broth, and Hitler claimed that this, um, this black broth had uh, derived from Schleswig-Holstein, and the Spartans <laughs> were, in fact, Naturally. essentially kind of Germans. Um, his, his, his plan for uh, the occupation of Poland was absolutely modelled on the way that the Spartans had, had annexed neighbouring Messenia and turned them into helots. So, so, so that, that was absolutely what, what Hitler was consciously trying to do. At Stalingrad, he, wanted, you know, he invoked the spirit of Thermopylae. So in that sense, um, 300 is, is, is probably... I mean, it's the, most, it's the most fascist mainstream film, I think, that's probably that, that's ever hit the cinema screens. I mean, its only real rival would be Starship Troopers, which was done very much tongue-in-cheek. I don't think yes. it's done remotely tongue-in-cheek. No. However, there, it, in certain ways, it's even more fascist than the fascists, because um, Hitler, of course, was a great believer in, in, in the Aryan race, and... The Persians were Aryan. That's you know that's why we call them Iranians. They came from Iran. Iran means the land of the Aryans. But in this, only the Greeks are portrayed as the goodies. The Persians are portrayed as as kind of subhuman, basically orcs. So it's quite a feat for a mainstream film to to, to be more fascist than Hitler. Um, and yet it is terribly entertaining, and that 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 plugs into the fact that that. You know, spectacles of 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 br the will to power can be kind of thrilling. It can kind of sweep you up, and that's why that's why fascism worked, and that's why essentially the Spartans have been admired for for two and a half thousand years. So it's a very disturbing film, I think. And sort of linking to that otherness of of the Persians, uh, we've obviously been talking a little bit about nine foot drag queens. He's even taller than that, isn't he? He's, uh, okay. 12, 13 foot. I okay, all right. Well, he's yeah, big. He's so, big. So, 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 understandably, when the film came out, there was a lot of outrage from Iranians saying um, King Xerxes was not a 12 foot drag queen. And they were quite right. You know, he was not. Um, Xerxes, from what we can tell of his reliefs, was a uh, you know, figure of great dignity, of great, of great power. Although it's very difficult to know because we don't actually. Every, everything we know about the Persian monarchy is, you know. The king is a kind of symbol, but he's a symbol of, of truth, of order, of power, of dignity. And what the Persian king, what Xerxes saw himself as doing when he led the, 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 his, his huge army to annex Greece was pretty much what NATO saw itself as doing in Afghanistan. The Persian king saw himself as entrusted with a mission by Ahura Mazda, the, 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 the supreme god, to bring order to a turbulent world. Um, the Greeks are, are kind of fractious, squabbling terrorists in, in, in a remote and barbarous, mountainous hold, holdout. So very much the attitude of the Persian high command would have been what you know, the attitude of the Pentagon to, to Afghanistan. It's a problem that needs sorting out. So Xerxes absolutely sees himself as the goody when he's coming down. He's not doing it simply because he's evil and he wants to conquer the world. However, that is pretty much what the Greeks saw. The Greeks saw the Persians as, you know, as, as terrifying. They saw the Persian king as um, the embodiment of hubris, the embodiment of um, an overwhelming, overweening pride and arrogance that dared to approach the... Uh, 
the rank of the gods themselves, and so therefore was was justly and inevitably hurled down. And so the story of of the Persian invasions, in which Xerxes puts the whole of Greece in in his shadow and then is defeated, becomes the kind of archetype of of, of hubris condemned by Nemesis for the Greeks. However, combined with the sense that the Persians are terrifying is um, an ambivalence, because the Greeks also regard the Persians as hilariously effeminate. And the marker of this effeminacy is that they wear trousers. <laughs> Nothing more girly than wearing trousers. Oh, obviously. So in, in, in the Greek, and, and, you know, and certainly the Spartan kind of way of, of understanding the Persians, they are simultaneously terrifying, monstrous, arrogant, hubristic, and massive girls' blouses. So in a way, the portrayal of Xerxes in this film is absolutely, absolutely true to that. It's not true to the historical Xerxes, but it's true to how the Greeks saw the historical Xerxes. And I think that, that if you understand 300 not as an attempt to reproduce what actually happened, and, and we have no real idea what actually happened, but if you see it as an attempt to portray the myth that the Greeks themselves fashioned around Thermopylae, then it, 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 it's a brilliant representation of that. Yes, yeah, so um, <clears throat> uh, in uh, some of the other talks at Hisfest and sort of some of my own, uh, own research over the years, that every culture has a story to tell. And in the, in the retelling, <laughs> it can grow it, 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 and it sort of distorts. But if you like, there's a certain cultural truth to the center of it. It started with fact, and then what you're learning about is how these people saw the world. And, yeah. and I think, I'm gonna stick my neck out here, there's no way to prove it, but I would argue that if you had a room full of Spartans, they wouldn't sit there and say, you're not wearing the armor right, you're, you know, this is wrong. That They would sit there and absolutely love it because this is what they would want to be remembered as, ultimately. The, the thing is that, um, that Thermopylae, in a sense, is as much a myth as Troy. So you've got two approaches to that. You, th you, you think about, um, the, who, who was it? Was it Wolfgang Peterson's? Oh, Troy. Troy, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's such a terrible film because it, <laughs> it, it, it tries to reproduce accurately something that never happened. Here, Thermopylae certainly happened, but what this film does is to go with the grain of the fact that its aura, its quality, is essentially mythic. And, and this is something that, that is true of the battle, I suspect, right from the, the very beginning, right from the very moment that Xerxes forces the pass. Now, objectively, Xerxes' victory at Thermopylae was an astonishing military feat, because there were not just 300 with, with, with a few Fokkins thrown in, as you see on that. There were 5,000 um, heavily armoured infantry occupying the pass and it's very difficult to move them out. The Persians understand this. The Persians have a, a huge empire and they have a because they're a mountainous people, they have a particular facility both for fortifying and for forcing mountain passes. And what they understand is that there is always a way to get round the pass. So when they turn up, you know, they test the Spartans, they test the Greeks. But the idea that Xerxes is just sitting there wondering what to do is, is, is ridiculous. What he's doing is he's sending his spies, he's sending his, his foragers out there to try and find a way through. And you know, the, again, the idea that Ephialtes just kind of decides that he's going to sell the pass is most implausible. Undoubtedly, offers were going out there saying, you know, show us the way round. 
So the Immortals go up round the pass. The Immortals are the best troops in the world for this kind of job. They are trained at mountain warfare. That's the whole point of them. So essentially, for the Persians to have forced the pass within kind of, you know, two and a half days, to have wiped out 300 of the fearsome Spartans, to have killed a king, is a brilliant military feat. And it's telling that in 300, when Leonidas dies, you see him riddled with, with arrows, kind of laid out. Um, what actually happened was that Xerxes decapitated his corpse, put it on a spike, and brought all the Greeks from around to have a look at it. This was a thumping military victory. It was a great propaganda blow. And of course, this sent reverberations of terror through the Greeks who lay to the south. And with the pass of Thermopylae having been forced, Athens, the city that had won the victory against Xerxes' father Darius at Marathon 10 years earlier, is now open. The temptation of the Spartans and everyone else who lives in the Peloponnese, which is this kind of almost island and forms the kind of southern fork of Greece, is to retreat behind the Isthmus of Corinth, very kind of narrow Isthmus, which could be fortified and hold out there. The, there are rival factions within, um, within the Greeks who are determined to resist, deciding what they should do. Should they fight north of the Isthmus of Corinth, or should they retreat south to the Peloponnese? This is an argument within Sparta. The argument, do you have a forward policy, as in the film, is, is kind of represented by Cersei Lannister. Yeah. And, or, do you, or, do, or, or do you kind of hold back? There were, there, there were no Medizers in Sparta, so the, the, um, that strand is, is, is untrue. But undoubtedly, there was a faction within Sparta that said, we shouldn't be sending our troops north of the Isthmus. We should be, you know, we should, we, we should be fighting in Sparta itself. So that's, that's part of the argument. But the other argument, and they don't feature in, in 300 at all, is the Athenians, because the Athenians are now totally exposed, and they're frantically trying to stop all the other Greeks from saying, OK, well, we're going to surrender, we're going to, hand, you know, we're going to make terms with these, or we're going to retreat behind the Peloponnese. So I suspect that what is happening in the aftermath of Thermopylae is that the guys who are really hyping up Leonidas as a great victory, a great warrior, so, so victory in defeat are actually the Athenians. And we could probably put a name on the guy who's doing it. He's a guy called Themistocles, who's the great... He, you know, he's, he's understood the threat from the Persians right from the beginning. He's kind of the, the, the Athenian Churchill. And he's a master of propaganda. He's a master of spin. He's a master of, 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 of moulding and shaping facts to fit his war aims. And I suspect that in the days that follow the defeat at Thermopylae, he is the guy who is bigging up this as an idea. You know, this is a sacrifice for Greece not just the sacrifice for Sparta, it's a sacrifice for Greece, for our freedom. We have to let this sacrifice, you know, we can't let this sacrifice go to waste. And the, and the corollary of that is the Battle of Salamis. Now, in due course, at the Plataea with which the, um, the, the, the film ends, the Spartans, the Athenians, the other Greeks who are pledged to carry on the fight against the, the Persians win the, win, win the decisive victory. The Persian invasion is, is, is crushed. And the Greeks go back to doing what they like to do, which is to fight with one another. And the two leading cities, the two cities who have garnered the greatest prestige from the victory over the Persians are, of course, the Athenians and the Spartans. And the Athenians are now stuck with the fact that Leonidas is this kind of great model of, of Spartan heroism. They probably don't like it. They'd much rather not have him there as a model of what Spartans can do. But they're stuck with it. And you can see this 
in the way that the earliest account we have of Thermopylae, which is Herodotus's, written you know, decades after the event, it's already starting to shade into myth. So in the account of the battle, um, when, when, when um, uh, the, the pass has been forced, the immortals have come down in the rear of the Spartans and, and, and the Spartans are, are kind of their last stand, there's an account of how Leonidas dies and the Spartans and the Persians are described as fighting over the body. So the, Pers you know, the Spart Persians pulling it one way, Spartans the other. And this is an echo of what happens in the Iliad. This is how, this is the fate of Patroclus. So what Herodotus is doing there is casting a kind of mythic sheen over the battle. Now, that mythic sheen has always attached to its, itself to Thermopylae ever since. It's, it's the archetype of heroic defeat. In, indeed, in a way, it's the archetype of heroism. So what this film is doing is going with the grain of that. It's, it's saying, yes, this is a mythic battle, and we're going to portray it as a myth, and we're happy with that. And I think, I think that that's a, a much more valid way of, of portraying ancient history than to try and um, give a kind of realist interpretation of it, to try and reproduce every detail, every fact, because we just, we just can't do that. And that whole ambition, the whole ambition to try and portray antiquity or indeed any period of history with that degree of accuracy is in fact incredibly anachronistic because it's very, very Walter Scott. It's very 19th century. So it's the equivalent of all those huge, great paintings that you get that nobody looks at anymore, where you have supposedly realistic portrayals of, of you know, the destruction of Pompeii or whatever. This is a Victorian way of understanding antiquity. This is simultaneously a very 21st century alt-right proto-Trump way of understanding history but it's also for that reason not untrue to the way that the Spartans themselves understood their history. Yeah, you, you made my sort of brain fire off in, in multiple different directions so I'm, I'm going to sort of like try and stick on the sort of straight and narrow here I was going to mention Troy but let's let's not go down that route. Um, what I wanted to instead sort of like look at is you've obviously made passing comment there about the fact that obviously Athens, Sparta, Corinth you have all these vying city-states and you know in a way this is east versus west but that was a very brief moment of unity amongst these Greek city-states. I've occasionally argued there was no such thing as ancient Greece in the sense that, you know, a Corinthian would happily stab a Spartan uh, just as soon as shake his hand. Yeah, well, uh, again, unmentioned in this is the fact that, that a lot of Greeks were, um, were on the Persian side. So there were a lot of Greeks in the Persian army. I mean, you know, there, were, there, there were Greeks in Ionia, which is the, what's now the Turkish side of, of, um, of the Aegean who were fighting with, with the Persians. Um, and there were a lot of Greeks, particularly in Boeotia, which is the, the, the area south of Thermopylae, north of Athens, north of Attica, which was kind of rotten with Medizing. So there were the, the Thebes, at, at Plataea, the Thebans provided a large contingent of the Persian forces. This is, this is, this is simply not name-checked. But you can understand why, because... You know, this is this is a film about heroism. It's a film about freedom. It's a film about the defiance of overwhelming odds. And complicating it by saying, "Yeah, but some of the Greeks were were on the Persian side," is 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 not the kind of thing that um, makes it go with a Hollywood swing. 
absolutely not. And, and you also mentioned, if you like, the Greek Churchill. But in a weird way, looking to sort of more modern analogy, you could argue Dunkirk is a little bit uh, uh, like, like 300 in, in the sense that both of them were fundamentally military defeats. But you get this wonderful spin about either the, the glorious <laughs> heroism or, look, we managed to get over 300,000 guys off the beach when they could have all just uh, ended up being captured. So, there, you know, spin exists at any stage in, in history in terms of turning something that was a defeat into some sort of either noble cause or, well, or glorious yeah. defeat so, or whatever. So, so one of the reasons why... That why the story of the Persian Wars continues to resonate two and a half thousand years on is, is that it has come to have the kind of resonance of an archetype. And because of Herodotus, who is, who is the historian who first describes it, he is the first person really to give us this idea that it was a, a battle between Asia and Europe. So it's become foundational for notions of, of Europe as being somehow the embodiment of freedom and Asia as being the embodiment of despotism. And that's a narrative that, um, understandably, has been very popular with Europeans. And so what happened in, in the 18th century, as um, the notion of Christendom began to, to, to kind of lose its, its potency, is that Europeans began to recategorize um, Europe as the land of freedom, the land of liberty, against the teeming hordes of, of, of Asiatic despotism. Um, and so this is, this is why Thermopylae continues to kind of have a purchase, not just for, for Hitler, but say for William Golding, who, who, who writes it in a famous essay. He visits the hot gates, he visits Thermopylae, and he says, paraphrasing slightly here, but he says, um, you know, little part of, of, of the reason that I can say and do what I want is because... Leonidas laid down his life here. And this is a really kind of, has been a crucial part of, of, of the myth of it, is that it's not just a tale of heroism, it's a tale of the defence of freedom. And so that's why the helots, the slaves, the, the Untermenschen are not there. Mm -hmm. And actually the, the 300 Spartans bought, 100, bought 150 helots with them and they died. You know, they died for their master's freedom. But that, that would obviously not play into that. So that's why they are not part of this. Although other aspects of the Spartan myth, you know, are, are absolutely foregrounded. No, that, that's, that's fair enough. And it is worth pointing out that in... Um that is an area that has been fought over multiple times. As far as I'm aware, there's been five battles in that area, the most recent one being in World War II. You know, well, the, the obvious, Romans have yeah, fought it's, there. It's, it's, it's an obvious bottleneck. Yeah. And in fact, it was much more of a bottleneck um, 2,500 years ago because what's happened is, is that the bay has silted up. So actually, the passage between the mountains and the sea is now very wide. But back, back, back in, the, in, in, um, in, in, in the time of Xerxes' invasion, it, it was very narrow. I mean... It, two points you could only get a wagon past it yes and to be fair to the movie they actually do quite a, you mean because you can't sort of whip out a map or things like that he's actually drawing in the sand and he does a yeah. pretty good job of explaining to well, people it's very, why it's you know, good the other thing the other thing about it is that it's very beautiful so the the, the scene where um the the spartans force the persians off the cliff and it's kind of you know you look at them in profile mm. i mean it's 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 strikingly beautiful and the, you know, the Spartans themselves are physically very beautiful. That's the point of them. They look, you know, amazing physiques. These kind of, you know, well, they're Batman physiques, aren't they? Because it's, it's Frank Miller who, who, who wrote yes. the, the strip yeah, yeah. cartoon on which this film is based. Also did Batman as the Dark Knight. And he wears this kind of cuirass of, of you know, perfectly moulded 
masculinity mm-hmm. and, and, and the Spartans have that, absolutely. And, and that again is very true to the way that the Greeks understood the relationship of beauty to virtue, that if you're beautiful, then you are, you're, you're virtuous. Outer beauty is expression of inner beauty. And so that's the significance of Ephialtes, who historically, of course, was, was, was not a hunchback no, Spartan. In a way, this is a kind of parody of um, Hollywood's favourite war trope, which is to say war is hell. So there's a kind of internal grammar in those films. And the internal grammar of those films says that if you have a band of brothers marching off to some you know, dangerous military engagement and somebody with a physical disability somebody who perhaps has been rejected from um kind of you know west point or sandhurst or whatever comes up and wants to join in the grammar of that film says that yeah he's going to get integrated into into the uh, into the unit and he's probably going to pull off some amazing feat of heroism that will enable him to save the unit what happens in this absolutely the opposite he comes up he's you know Please let me join. And I, you know, well, I, I, I bet that most people, the first time they see that, think, yeah, Leonidas is going to say, yeah, of course you can join us. And then he's going to kind of defend Leonidas or something or save his life. No, Leonidas says, you're horrible. You're ugly. You're useless. Piss off. Well, so to be fair, in the, well, in the film, he gives him a secondary option. You can carry the, the yeah. bodies away kind yes. of thing, but so that's not could, good enough. Yeah, which yeah. is what the helots are for. So he's basically saying, you know, you are physically deformed. So therefore, you are, you, you know, your yeah. role is to play that of a slave. And that, that, of course, is, again, highly true to the way that, 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 that the Greeks saw the world. If you're, if you're physically deformed, then you're physically, you know, you're, you're morally ugly within. Mm, mm. And again, it's very, very unsettling, I think. And can I just uh, sort of throw in another movie very, very briefly about this whole sort of like weakness leading to sort of hero, heroism. The, the uh, image that's sort of smashed into my head at that point is Black Hawk Down, where they, they need to get more troops into the area. And you see this guy, he, you know, this is a ranger. They're, they're going to be physically very, very fit in the 1990s. They wouldn't allow somebody, an asthmatic, to be a frontline ranger. And he pumps on his Ventolin inhaler and he jumps into the Humvee. And of course, he sort of like does something incredibly heroic later on in the movie. But it's, yeah. yeah. Well, but the Spartan film board wouldn't let that. No, no, you know, that, that'd be unthinkable. Know, an asthmatic would have been chucked down the ravine, <laughs> you know, within kind of two months of his being born. I mean, absolutely none of that. And, you know, and, and, and again, um, Death is beautiful. So that's why you don't see Leonidas with his head chopped off. When you do see a head chopped off, so, the, you know, the young man, head goes, his, he, sta- he stays standing, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, look at my pecs, and then slowly <laughs> kind of crumple. And then you have his dad. And his dad is kind of, you know, goes, has, has a kind of bloodlust, then gets, a, you know, he's upset. And then he comes up at the end and he says to Leonidas, my heart is full of hatred. And Leonidas says, good <laughs> hatred is brilliant hatred of your enemy is excellent you you know it will fuel you to kill them yes which is which is why it reminds me of starship troopers where i don't know if you've seen starship troopers but starship mm-hmm. troopers is is you know the, it's a load of fascists in the future attacking bugs and they round up yep. a bug at the end and they're kind of mind melding with it so it's again parody of star trek <laughs> yeah and, and and they say oh it feels pain and they'll go, brilliant, yeah, yeah. it. And that's how they ended it. 
Well, yes. that, that is clearly kind of a parody. Whereas here, you feel it's completely, it's done completely straight. Yeah, you know, hatred of your enemies is brilliant because it means you can kill more of them. I am going to have to share here. Uh, I happened to go on a first date to Starship Troopers, and, wow. and yeah, I didn't know what I was letting myself into. The girl, the girl said about three quarters of the way through the film. Um, I have a headache. I'm going to wait for you outside. And I was agonizing about whether I should I stay or should I go. And uh, I'm not going to say on a live stream what I did, okay? So, um, I, look, uh, I, I'm aware that you are pushed for time. We have a man here who has a deadline for Christmas to get his new book finished. Uh, so, um, of course, we can read more about the Persian and, and the Greeks in your book. Well, you can read about it in Herodotus. Uh, okay, uh, yes. My translation of which is available in, from Penguin Classics, available from all good bookshops, or in my account of the Persian Wars, Persian Fire, which I believe is also available from all good bookshops and online retailers. Excellent, yes. Uh, well, look, thank you very much uh, for your time, Ton, and can we uh, give him a round of applause? Thank you very much. Thank you. If anyone's got any questions, happy to ask, or if otherwise, if yeah. Sorry, I know you need to go, but you can't help notice there's only one woman in the film. Yeah. Fair enough. But she's, he's really deferential to her. Is that quite realistic, for yes. example, when, yeah. Yeah, when they put the messenger yeah, down? Yeah, so, 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 so her character, yeah. it's, Le it's Lena Headey, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. Or Cersei Lannister, I like that Cersei line, Lannister. yeah. So she, she plays a character called Gorgo, as in Gorgon. And the thing about the Gorgon is that, of course, it turns men to stone. <laughs> so, so, so she's a figure of power. She is married to Leonidas, but she's also the daughter of a king called Cleomenes. And Cleomenes is, was a king who symbolised the idea of, of he was anti-Persian, forward defence. Um, and there's a story in, in Herodotus where she's a very young girl that she keeps Cleomenes on the, on the kind of moral straight and narrow. So within Herodotus, Gorgo is, 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 is a figure of... of, of kind of great moral rectitude and significance. So the role that she has in this film is not untrue to the history at all. And women in Sparta were very independent. They, were, they, they, they got an education. I mean, uniquely, the, the Athenians were basically the Taliban. <laughs> women had to stay in the house. Free women had to stay in the house. In, in, in Sparta, women got, got an education. They were trained physically. They had this amazing ability to uh, do a dance where they would slap the, um, the heels of their feet on their buttocks. And this was their, their USP. Um, so yes, so, so, so the, the, the relative freedom of, of women in Sparta is pretty true to... I mean, it's obviously nothing in it is accurate. <laughs> but, but, but it's not inaccurate. Uh, yeah, just... Uh basically taking a few mental notes throughout the uh, talk here about uh, there are three points I want to get in about first of all the death cult of fascism and its uh, inherent contradictions right uh, like we, we see a lot like you're talking about how like, uh, it's good that he fills his, his heart with hate and we see a lot of these like of this sort of this rage induction if you will in uh in fascism, in their, in, their, in their population. The other point I want to get to was about the, uh, you're talking about how the, the imagery of Sparta, Thermopylae, gets used, uh, about and how it was used for Christendom, and then uh, the one thing I want to point out is how it's also used uh, in, a, in ways to construct the idea of the West. 
Yeah. In air quotes. And how the West can actually be used to exclude people. Ironically, in Hitler's, uh, get back to the very beginning of this, so in, in Hitler's hierarchy, how the Greeks were actually put under a lot of the Europeans in terms of his racial hierarchy. The Greeks and well, the Italians, well, ironically, well, the founders of both the, the Greco-Roman world. Well, what, what, Hitler thought, what Hitler thought was that, that both the Greeks and the Romans were Aryans from the north, mm -hmm. um, and that, that they had essentially been corrupted by a combination of climate and Slavic invasions. <laughs> and this, this was why Hitler decided that he was going to go, go east rather than, than go south, was because... Um, he, he felt that, that, that the Mediterranean climate sapped your ability to, um, to, to belong to the master race because you just spend your whole time kind of eating calamari and going to the beach. It's obviously completely right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call me corrupt, yeah. 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 Sounds like a good, good plan. But he, but, but he, you know, he believed that, that, the, that the, the ancient Greeks were, were completely German. That's why, he thought that, that's why he thought the Spartan broth had come from... <laughs> from 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 the Baltic, and actually on that broth thing, I seem to remember an Athenian tried it and said he he now realised why the Spartans didn't fear death. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, a lot of the, I mean a lot of the joke, the kind of laconic, as in you know laconic means Spartan. The kind of witticisms, the quips, the sans foi are, are, are all they're all lifted from the stories that are told about the Spartans. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, the Spartans made. You know, they didn't write plays, but they had kind of pithy, very short phrases that, that everyone admired. So when Gorgo says to Leonidas, you know, um, come back with your shield or on it, this is, this is a famous, mm. this is what Spartan women say to their men. And also the whole thing about, um, um, you know, the mother crying when her son at seven has to go off and kill a wolf. Um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday uh, about Roald Dahl talking about his boarding school and describing how he, he had to go and warm the seat of the toilet for the prefects. <laughs> if, he didn't, if he didn't warm it adequately, the prefects would beat it. Oh, God. I kind of think, you know, that, that's, these boarding schools were directly modelled yeah, on the yeah, model of Spartan education. That's, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to raise... British imperialists to be like the Spartans. Yeah, and, and the word Spartan is not uh, derogatory, is it? You know, a, a Spartan upbringing or Spartan meal is considered good, whereas it means it's not enough, basically. I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe there's maybe there's a gap in the market for a kind of really Spartan boarding school. Bring it back, you know, <laughs> have wolves and things. Just character building. Yeah, oh yes, yeah, yes. Anyway, on that on that bombshell, I'll um, I'll leave you. Thank you very yeah, thank much. Thank you very much Thanks. for your time. Thank you. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.